Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I welcome you, especially if you're a visitor this morning. If you have questions, please ask the kindly and knowledgeable people at the visitor table in the foyer. We come from a heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship today is an excerpt from a reading written by the retired UU minister, Reverend Richard Gilbert, who in 1995 received the UUA Award for the faith-based social justice work that he was doing. The reading is titled, Be Gentle with One Another. Be gentle with one another. It is a cry from the lives of people battered by thoughtless words and brutal deeds. Who of us can look inside another and know what is there of hope and hurt or promise and pain? Who can know from what far places each has come? Life is too transient to be cruel with one another. It is too short for thoughtlessness, too brief for hurting. Be gentle with one another. We come to this room and we call ourselves Unitarian Universalists, and that is the faith path that we are treading. Our roots come from many different world religions and many different types of backgrounds. Our practices are also gathered from the four corners of the earth. And yet, we are here together. And one of the things that holds this congregation together is its mission statement, which we write on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our meditation reading today is an excerpt from a poem written by Edna St. Vincent Millay, who, by the way, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1923 and coined that popular phrase, quote, my candle burns at both ends, end quote. The poem from which I'm reading is titled, Conscientious Objector. I shall die... But that is all that I shall do for death. I hear him leading his horse out of the stall. I hear the clatter on the barn floor. He is in haste. He has business in Cuba, business in the Balkans, many calls to make this morning. But I will not hold the bridle while he cinches the girth. And he may mount by himself. I will not give him a leg up. 
Now is the time where we breathe together deeply, where we grow still, where we find the silence, allowing it to include small child noises and the noises of life going on around us. We follow our breath deep into our bodies, grateful for it. May we help life wherever we can. May we choose life when the choice comes to us. Let us enter the silence together. So, lots of people talk about the Ten Commandments with great passion and reverence. We've been having a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're uh, past the halfway point. We're on number six today, Thou Shalt Not Kill. It's interesting for many of us to bring our free Unitarian Universalist hearts and minds to these ancient laws to see what they have for us. Um, I hear that one person is boycotting church altogether till I'm finished with this series. I hope that person knows it's just once a month and they're going to be gone for about a year, but um, I I miss them, whoever they are. So thou shalt not kill is one of the commandments that's recited so piously and broken so blatantly um, that it it kind of paves the way for us just reciting these rules without actually feeling like they have any um, bearing on us. We kill plants for food. We kill animals for food. But really nobody thinks that this commandment is about plants or animals. We kill in wars. We use the death penalty for certain criminals. In fact, Texas accounts for over 40% of our nation's executions. Um, We don't kill uh, all murderers, but mostly we do kill the poorer, blacker ones. These are the instances in which we most egregiously ignore this commandment. And there are people who take it literally. There are uh, pacifists. They take it to mean that you shouldn't kill anyone at all at any time for any reason. The Amish demonstrated this uh, in front of the nation. 2006, a gunman came into one of their schools and shot um, 10 girls, killing six of them. And the whole Amish community together um, came out pretty much the next day and forgave him and began working with the families of the children and the family of the gunman. The folks who are most passionate about the Ten Commandments being displayed in courthouses and schools are usually the same ones who are in favor of the death penalty, against abortion, pro-war, kind of an odd mix. It doesn't really make sense to me, but I'm sure it does to them. 
People say it's cheaper uh, to kill criminals. We don't want to have to feed and house them for their whole lives. But in fact, with our appeal system, it's actually more expensive to execute someone than to feed and clothe and house them for the rest of their lives. And if you feed and clothe and house them, then you have the option in case new evidence or a new confession or some DNA evidence turns up that uh, you can let them go if they're innocent. In ethics classes in seminary, I heard the argument that the commandments are really for individuals, not for nations. That the, that uh, Rabbi Jesus' ethics or that really any religious leader's ethics are for individuals. And so to, to say, I'm going to turn my other cheek if someone slaps me um, is your choice. But if someone slaps someone in your family, you can't really turn their other cheek, see? If you're a leader of a nation and someone slaps your nation, you can't decide for the whole group unless you're the Amish and you've all agreed on this one principle. You can't really for the whole group decide to turn the other cheek. So maybe um, the ethics of each commandment is for individuals rather than for nations. That's one argument about it. So uh, I'm not sure if I could personally kill. Um, I feel pretty sure I could if someone came after one of my children or my grandchildren at this point. I don't really think that it would take that much thought, but it probably would ruin me for the rest of my life. Uh, I would prefer to take bad guys and uh, stun them somehow, tie them up, and then talk to them like my parents used to talk to me instead of spanking me about how disappointed I am in their behavior. I'm pretty sure they'd be begging for death if we tag-team them. Can you imagine 600 Unitarians taking turns telling you how disappointed they were in you? So most biblical scholars say this commandment is not a prohibition against all kinds of killing, not thou shalt not kill, really. It just means thou shalt not murder. That's what most of them are. Um, decided on, and that narrows it down some, but then the high school debate team shows up and starts peppering you with questions. You know, what is murder? How is it different from killing? And is the death penalty murder? And is it murder when you kill someone in self-defense? And what about killing in defense of another person? Is that murder? And what about killing in a war? And does it need to be a war that's a just war? And what is the just war? Is there such a thing? And when is a war a just war? World War II to stop the Nazis has been called the last good war. We killed and were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan for a purpose few people supported, and it looks like we're being tempted to get back in. Most ethicists will say that killing in a war, if done according to the rules of engagement, is not murder. It's its own thing. But anyone who has been in a war knows that the lines get blurry and that things happen that you can't really decide for sure whether they were a mistake or not. St. Augustine, um, way back in the 6th century, said if that you need to have soldiers, but that they should be reluctant soldiers. So you should have people in your armies who are not really excited about killing folks. 
And, um, and I think from my experience with the military folks that I have known, the farther, uh, the more experience they have with war, the less enthusiastic they are about war. And when you um, reach the top echelons of the people who have been career service people, they have a very realistic view of what war is like and very reluctant to uh, start a new one. And some biblical scholarship says the commandment doesn't really only say thou shalt not murder, but uh, one scholar said it should be more accurately read, thou shalt not murder within thine own tribe. So now we're getting somewhere. That makes sense because about um, a month after they were given the commandments, they were ordered to go across the river and kill everybody uh, who was in that town. And they also had a rule that you could um, kill people who'd broken some of the other commandments. Or if your child wasn't uh, obeying you, if you felt they were ungovernable, you also had the choice to end them. So so this helps all of that make a little more sense, that it might mean you shouldn't kill within your own tribe unless it's your kid and you decide to. So what they were doing was they were killing foreigners who were on the land that they felt their God had promised to them. So last night, Israel is shelling Gaza and leafleting that the people should move out, move south. The people who were in charge of things in the mid-40s, the British, um, when they decided to give the Jews a homeland, decided on Palestine. Um, Partly that was because some of the Zionists wanted Palestine And partly it was because Lord Bieberbrook, who was in the British government, was an evangelical Christian, and he felt that the Jews had to be put back in Palestine in order for Jesus to come back again. And so that's why he pushed the British government to repatriate all the Jews in Palestine. And so because of this idea that the God of this one particular group of people had promised them this land over here, uh, the Palestinians who'd been living on it for many years were supposed to move out and just give it up, which has caused a lot of conflict. So, um, so now we're at thou shalt not murder within thine own tribe. But now we're We've evolved a little bit, uh, at least on the surface, to where we do believe that killing is wrong even outside your own tribe. We, we understand that human beings have a sense of right and wrong, and we like to nurture that sense of right and wrong, and we get alarmed when we meet a human being who seems not to have a sense of right and wrong. We call them sociopaths. And so um, we agree with each other, most of us, that really morality is kind of written on a decent person's heart 
and that it doesn't come from outside somewhere. Edward O. Wilson wrote a book called The Biological Basis of Morality. He's the Pellegrino University Research Professor Emeritus in Entomology for the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. He's a lecturer at Duke and a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He says, moral values come from human beings, whether or not God exists. Ethical codes have arisen by evolution through the interplay of biology and culture. And he says, there comes a point in human culture where human beings realized that it was more advantageous in terms of the, uh, the ongoing propagation of your species to... Um, cooperate with one another. And so we began selecting mates and having children and uh, culturally pushing on people to be a little more cooperative. Um, But also biologically, we had a disposition to say these are our people that we cooperate with and these are the people we do not cooperate with. There's us and there's them. And um, people say, you know, everybody's one We're all one, and uh, people who romanticize the First Nations on this continent say, oh, well, you know, and they say we're one with everything, even the trees and the rocks, but then you find out that the native, you know, the, the, the name for your tribe means the people, almost always, the people, and your name for the other tribe means the enemy. So what happened to everybody being one? I don't know. It's complicated. But apparently we have a biological urge to cooperate with with us and not with them. And so our task, as we've talked about before, is to broaden our sense of us until pretty much there's no them left. It's all us. And you can see this in people's differing reactions to the children who are amassing on this side of the border right now. So we have 52,000 children unaccompanied who have come across the border and turned themselves into the Border Patrol. And some people are saying, these are germ-ridden vermin who need to get returned back to their country, wherever it is. And um, other people, uh, like this lovely judge who's head of Dallas County, saying, we'll take 2,000 children, because even though we can't help all of them, we can help some of them, and we would like to educate them while they're here and treat them humanely, Um, and we would like to maybe work on the conditions back home that are making them feel that they have to flee, and maybe we can see these children as some of us and their parents as some of us whose children are in such dire situations that we would put our children on the bus and say, good luck, honey. I hope you make it rather than have them be killed by gangs in our own neighborhoods. So some of us are seeing these children as more of us. And some are seeing these children as them. And it's very instructive in your mind when you're thinking about um, the world to just notice in your mind who you're thinking of as us and who you're thinking of as them. And do you see people? as if they were your relatives, or do you see them as if they were other? So, 
What I want to say is, um, no matter what our propensities, I would like to change my human nature so that I don't see them and us. I would like to change that in myself. I don't even know how to do that, much less change it in someone else. I don't know what to do about all the children um, on the border. I don't think anybody has the true, the right, the pure answer. I think we have to be in conversation about it. We have to wrestle about it, and we have to wrestle with kindness, curiosity, and respect. This is what our behavior covenant says that we want to do. We want to wrestle with kindness and curiosity and respect while we're in the middle of changing ourselves so that we can see all human beings as members of our family. And we try, as we're doing this, not to be overcome with self-righteousness. Because as you all know, self-righteousness is the root of all bad behavior. So I love this, this poem by Unitarian poet E.E. E. Cummings. May my heart always be open to little birds who are the secrets of living. Whatever they sing is better than to know. And if people should not hear them, people are old. May my mind stroll about hungry and fearless and thirsty and supple And even if it's Sunday, may I be wrong, for whenever people are right, they are not young. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts. Until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight Is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.